I can tell you, tell the cows come home that you're strong, but unless you feel it, you don't feel it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just ask people to do things. I don't tell them what the weights are. I just get them to do things. And then mm -hmm. it's like, oh my goodness, that's more than I thought I could do. And then that's all that's needed. And then the dams break and, and the belief that, well, maybe this is possible takes place. Welcome to Mom Strength, a podcast and movement to empower, educate, and showcase mom strength inside and out. I'm your host, Surabhi Veach, physiotherapist and fitness coach, also known as the Passionate Physio. Join me for discussions on movement, mindset, and motherhood, where we raise the bar and challenge the status quo. Get ready for expert interviews and real, honest conversations where we explore physical, mental, and emotional health. Let's celebrate the beautiful diversity and common experiences in all of our journeys. Let's do this. Hello, friends. I am so excited and honored today to have one really special guest on this podcast, Anthony Lowe. Uh, I met Anthony Lowe for the first time about a year ago, uh, virtually, when I was taking his female athlete, uh, the female athlete level one course. And I had just recently given birth to my second son or my second child, my son. And I think I was like five and a bit weeks postpartum. And I was like, should I be signing up for this? Is this a smart idea? But I was really, really excited to take his course. And I'm so glad that I did um, because I really think it changed the, the entire trajectory trajectory of my postpartum experience um, and my whole mindset and uh, confidence as a mom uh, and as a postpartum healthcare professional. So I will do a official intro of Anthony. Anthony Lowe is the physio detective and he's a physiotherapist who works at the junction of ortho, sports, and pelvic health. He has a passion for helping health and fitness professionals as well as the general public who struggle to return to their moderate to high intensity activity goals while man managing pelvic health, diastasis, and ortho and sports conditions. He's from Sydney, Australia, but works and teaches all around the world. Hi, Anthony. Welcome. I'm happy to have you on here. Thank you very much. It's truly a pleasure to be here. Um, so right now, it's been about a year since the female athlete course, and um, I have to say that one of the most, um, the, one of the biggest things that I re re remember from kind of meeting you virtually is the amount of confidence you have in mothers and women's um, abilities postpartum and in general. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your journey into working with postpartum people, with mothers, with women in general? and kind of how you got to do the things that you're doing right now. Yeah, um, it's pretty simple. I, I started in the public health system and I was on the antenatal ward and covered the antenatal clinic and uh, saw people postpartum as well as part of that. Um, and when I did a country rotation, that was just part of the everyday as well. And so uh, I liked it. I really liked it. I thought I actually wanted to be into pediatrics, but when I did that at university on my um, clinical rotation for that, the clinical placement, like it sucked bad for so <laughs> many different reasons. And um, yeah, I, I really didn't enjoy that at all. However, the antenatal postpartum um, really, it was really interesting. And, and 
so because of that and because i'm interested in the pelvis and then the thorax uh, which are just not readily and easily taught especially back then um mm-hmm. then yeah it just seems like a natural fit uh, yeah that's how i got started into that and the confidence in what people can do postpartum is because i see people do all sorts of stuff postpartum and it just doesn't make sense to me some of the recommendations that i was giving to people and yet watching them then pack everything up and run off to go do other stuff which was like way harder than what i just asked them to do so mm-hmm. that little confusion there you know i could obviously i explained it away but it just always nagged at me and then it was like no that just doesn't make sense so and that is that is so true. My first postpartum experience, you know, I it was six weeks postpartum when I went to my pelvic PT. I was already carrying the stroller, lifting the car seat in and out, which weighs, you know, 20, 30 pounds with a newborn. And then I went in and it's like I'm lying on my back doing very, very basic core activation exercises, being told that I'm not good at it and that I need to continue to work on that before I do anything else. Um, and it's so disempowering to someone who is active and who was an athlete to then be told like, you're not breathing right and you're not, you know, turning your abs on right. So you better like regress and do these things. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your approach in, um, working with people? Let's say you're seeing somebody who's postpartum, they've already seen pelvic PT or they, maybe they haven't, uh, and they come to see you and, you know, what, what approach do you take in, Uh, assessing and um, giving them exercises or treatment that's appropriate for where they are? Well, I think it's, it's right in the question there, right? The first thing you have to do is assess what, what they're doing. So to me, whilst I could use my guide and my checklist and my beliefs of what you should be doing before you progress on, that's that's ultimately about what I want, not about what you want. Uh, so that's the first thing I think. Then, um, as as a part of that assessment process, which is sitting down and talking to people to find out what they want to do, um, is yeah. Well, then, how does all of this fit into your life? I am very realistic about what goes on in somebody who has just given birth and has to take care of kids. Um, like one kid is enough. Um, you know, the experience that I've had in general is that most people have one kid. It's a massive slap in the face of how hard and different that is to what they were doing before. And then they have a second kid and they go, oh my goodness, I thought I was busy before. This is a different level of busyness and it just keeps going. Yep. And there, there, I do believe there is a point at which when you start having more kids, it becomes easier because you actually have other kids that can help out with other things but it really just depends on that gap. We had three under three under four or something like that, three kids in four years or something. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, that was fun. That's busy. It, it was busy. Um, and But, you know, very grateful that my eldest was super helpful. Even when she was just over one, you would be able to say that she couldn't talk, but you'd be able to say to her, oh, you know, can you get a nappy for Daniel? her brother, the baby, and she would toddle off to the nappy change table, go pick up a nappy and bring it back. Like, you know, she could barely walk, but she could go do that. (laughs) Uh, She was just super, super helpful. So helpful. Yeah. 
And I think that that's a valid, that's a really important point because it depends on the children you have, their personalities, their age gaps. For me, I did find the transition to two a lot easier because I kind of knew what to expect. It wasn't as big or as drastic a change in my lifestyle. Um, I was already tired. So there was less of a, you know, oh, I I went from eight hours of sleep to like nothing. Yeah, there was less of a shock. Um, and I know that there are moms who have had their first kids, especially they often get into that comparison mode. Oh, well, this person seems to be handling it so much better Mm. or they're back to this activity already. Um, you know, what's wrong with me. Right. And one of the messages that I always try to tell people is like, give yourself time. It takes a lot longer and we only see part of the picture. We might see somebody out at the park with their kids you know, running around, but we don't know the amount of work that's gone in behind the scenes for them to get there um, or how much support they have at home. Yeah. And some people are just, you know, um, some people just recover differently and they're ready to do things. Um, You know, I had somebody play volleyball at two to three weeks postpartum in a comp. Um, Right. Wow. And she was ready. I didn't recommend it. Yeah. She didn't. She didn't tell me until the six week checkup because she came and saw me in two weeks. Like I was, she was sitting right here, and so I was stony faced, going, "Oh my god!" in my head. <laughs> it was like, "Oh," but then it's like, "Okay, okay, okay, hold on." She might be an outlier. It doesn't mean that she's gone and you know totally had a car wreck Made experience. So I asked her about it. Oh, yeah, you know, it was only for like a minute at a time. My team were really supportive. They were happy for me to just swap in and out. Uh, I just wanted to be with my team. And, you know, that was that was really good. And, And I shelved the why did you do that for feelings that really are inside me? Like they're inside me all the time. I have a difficult conversation Mm -hmm. to have soon. Um and with somebody that I think is going to do something which I would not recommend. Um, Mm -hmm. But also trying to navigate what that looks like because it's not about what I want and yet I have a responsibility to present the information, which if the sum of it is, hey, do you understand the risks? Because these, these are the risks. This is the information that we do know and it's my job to make sure that you do make your choices with fully informed consent and that means mm-hmm. you do need to know about these things and if you're still okay with that well then cool let's go forwards with that but just for me to come in and impose my my beliefs and my standards and like that's not how I think things should go even though I was trained that way and I just want to jump in and do that like it's a fight it's a daily fight uh, I do wonder if we weren't trained that way because it was same same here. I graduated ten years ago, and there is a lot of like, I find I I call it the patriarchal model of healthcare. Right? It's like I know better. I know what's right. You don't know what's right. You don't know your body. I know I know it better. Um, and I think we take away that agency from the person. You know that. Uh, ability for them to trust themselves and determine for themselves what's what's best because if you had told me at two or three weeks postpartum to go jump and play volleyball like I would have just been laughed I would have been like no I know my body can't do it even if someone's like yes you can I I wouldn't have been able to do it versus someone who's like an elite athlete who's capable um and is being smart about it um how do you balance that you know explanation of risk without inducing more fear because there is a lot of fear mongering in um 
in fitness in postpartum for sure. And we as practitioners don't want to be inducing more fear in our clients. Um, and how do you balance that like expl- explanation of like these are their potential risks without making them afraid of their bodies? It's, uh, it's difficult. I'm not going to lie. Um, it takes navigation. It takes, you know, reading the person, reading the room. Um, and like, I think for the average person, like, I don't think we have much of an issue, right? Um, Mm -hmm. even with this person, she didn't tell me anything about going back to playing volleyball or anything. Um, she came to me because she was referred by the midwife for a diastasis. So I checked her diastasis. I checked her, uh, pelvic floor externally, um, with consent, um, and taught her things to look out for. So things like bearing down pressure. And when, when you do your pelvic floor exercises, what a squeeze and lift feels like, not just in lying down, but in upright. Um, so that she can self-assess and she can see what bearing down could feel like. And, um, you know, obviously recommended a internal pelvic health check if that's what she would mm-hmm. like. Um, she decided on her own about the volleyball thing. I, I often think if she told me at two weeks postpartum, what would I say? And in the end, I, I think I would want to know more. Why do you feel the need to go back at three weeks postpartum? Um, and then assess her for different things. Okay, let's look at the stance. Let's get in that position. Let's take off. Let's see what happens when you jump to block. Let's see what happens when you dive. Uh, because I'd want to see those things. Um, and from what I gathered, it was a fairly casual comp, right? Like it's just, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't, yeah, it, was, it wasn't like she yeah. was, uh, you know, playing sometimes volleyball games. tournaments can be like all weekend game after game, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it was just one of those weeknight, um, you know, have a hit and a hit and bit of fun with your mates type thing. Um, nice. Yeah. But you know, a couple yeah. of things you know, stand out from what you're telling me is like, it's true because a lot of people who want to desperately return back to sport early postpartum, in my experience anyway, it's a mental health thing. It's their crutch. You know, it's like, I need to run again. I need to bike again to kind of feel like myself to, um, you know, get away from this crying baby and do something that makes me feel like me. And um, you're so right about that. It's a conversation about why, why do you want to do this? And you know, what are the risks of waiting another week or two versus going for it? Um, and something that I remember you saying in the course is that um, I, you probably worded a lot more eloquently than I'm going to right now, but it, it reminded me of uh, the fact that, you know, exercise or sport shouldn't be the thing that makes you feel like you. Like if you're so deeply attached to that as part of your identity, um, and it made me realize because after my first, I never got back to running, which I did competitively and recreationally for a long time. And I just assumed that that was a part of my, you know, part of my goals, athletic goals that I would never get back to because of prolapse. And it wasn't until I really, you know, until your course and I started considering like, is this a possibility and can I run again? Um, and then when I did get back to it, I, f- I did feel good. I felt like I feel like me again. And I'm like, is this a good thing or am I... Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I'm really curious kind of how you came to that conclusion and, um, so it's, yeah, in your experience. It's okay for people to identify as a runner. 
um, the issue comes when you can't run anymore. So does that mean that you're less of a person mm. if you're not that thing? And so when we put our identity in, in what we do, then it feels like an attack on our identity or it feels like we're no longer, I suppose, the person we were. No longer if, whole. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. And that's, I think, a lot of, I felt like that. I felt like, oh, I can't run again. I'm not, an, I'm not the athlete that I thought I was. I guess, you know. And what's the meaning behind all of that? Whereas if mm-hmm. you put your, if you put your identity in values, for example, then those things are, I, I suppose, you know, everything comes with its own problems. And if we just start with some baseline assumptions, like everybody is worthy of respect, uh, everybody makes mistakes in their life, uh, you can make a choice that I disagree with, but it doesn't mean that you deserve less respect as a person than anybody else. Like if we just start mm-hmm. with some of these basic fundamental human rights type stuff, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it doesn't matter then if somebody does identify as a runner, but I want to know about that and know how that's affecting somebody and then provide, um, provide, I suppose, a safe space to explore if that's something that you want to go back to. Right. Mm. So what does running mean to you? If it's that important to you, then let's work backwards and figure out what you can do now to go back to doing running. Um, so, you know, it, it's not about, it's not even about me and, and my ideas of identity and, and where you place your own personal value. If that's what you want to do, that's cool. But as a source of distress, then mm-hmm. it's one of the things that we've got to be aware of because if you're not even aware that your identity as a runner is affecting how you relate to your own body and and recovery from anything, including a postpartum uh, journey, then, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe you feel like you've had to, I don't know, I'm making this stuff up now, um, compromise, and the rest of your life is now a compromise because you can no longer run. You'll, you'll never live your best life because you're not running. And like, is that true? Like, is that really true? Mm, that's um, a great question. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that I don't, it's not that I teach that people shouldn't have their identity there. I, I suppose I, I think people should think about what it means to have your identity where you do have it. Um, that's that's a great way to look at it. Uh, it made me think about, you know, when I used to treat um more in sports medicine, you know, people with ACL tears and they can't play basketball anymore for, you know, a short period of time, let's say a year even. Um, And they're, you know, huge mental health issues with that and their identity as an athlete has shifted. And I think in some ways our society is so tied to the things we do as our um, measures of worth. It's like if I'm not playing sports, if I'm not um, speaking at these you know, conferences, if I'm not basically have this big, beautiful house and these big kids, it's all about like the things we do instead of like the people we are. Um, And because it's a visual thing, you can very clearly see what people are accomplishing when they're doing versus when they're being. And it's really made me think about over the past um, few years anyways, when I became a parent is like how our children 
are such great teachers because we're not in awe of them because they're doing things. We're on, we're in awe of them because of who they are. And why don't we then as adults and especially I find as women look at ourselves in that same way. Um, so that's, it's, it's a really, I, I love the way you just described that. And that gives me a lot to think about. And also if you're, um, you know, a client or a mom or a healthcare professional listening to this, I think that that's really, really thought provoking as well. Is there ever a time that you um, have to tell people straight up, like you won't be, ret- be able to return back to this or I don't think you can, can get there or not really? I don't think so. I I don't think it's fair to put an upper limit on what people can do. Um, number one, because I don't know what um, the upper limit of things are, right? I don't know what technology can do in the next five to 10 years. I think it's really unfair to say something like that. Um, if they tell me that they want to win an Olympic medal in whatever sport it is that they want to do and you know, like, I'm not going to say, no, you can't, but, uh, you know, it's also, (laughs) unless I'm their coach, it's not my place to say that number one, no, you can't, but I can tell them things like, okay, with your range of motion, you're going to find it hard to hold a weight overhead in the way that you need to. And you're going to have to work hard for that if that's your goal, right? If it was me, for example, and I wanted to win the hundred meters in the Olympic, uh, I don't know, in the final of the Olympics, <laughs> I like it. I, I'm not even sure that I would say that that's my job to say no to that. It's like, well, you can work towards it and see where things end up. How can I support you? So I don't think it's my job to be the reality check that they may or may not need. My job is to create a situation where they can find the answer for themselves. And I think most people are realistic. I don't think most people, like, you know, if you've got a kid who's 10 who says, I want to win the Olympics, like nobody says no to them, right? Because it is possible. But you take Mm -hmm. someone who's 45 and say, right, I've never sprinted in my life. This is going to be what I'm going to try win the gold medal at the Olympics against these 25-year-olds. Yeah, like, I mean, the odds are really low. Now, unless somebody says, do you think that that is realistic? I'm not going to say no. It's like, okay, Mm. well, then let's work out how to support you to do that. And you tell me if the goal changes. (laughs) Because you can always strive for the goal and fall short of that goal and still have accomplished so much. Maybe you do set world records in your age group and you continue to do Mm -hmm. so for the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s and the 80s. And maybe that is something that, okay, fine, I didn't win the Olympic gold medal, but I won all these world championships and world records for my age group. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if I sat there and said at the time, why would you even bother? There's no way that you could win the Olympic gold medal at this age. Nobody's done it. Even the best of the best have retired. Like, why would you do that to somebody's dream? And. That's the thing. Like there are so many dream crushers in in the healthcare field and in the fitness field. And I think it's unfortunate because I think you're so right. People innately know whether a dream is realistic, what you know, whether it's a physical goal, whatever it is. And I think that um, I love that you said like creating a space where they can realize it for themselves. 
um, and supporting them to get there or to get close to there so that they're, they're still feeling like they're making progress, even if they don't achieve that kind of final end result. I do want to add a, sorry, I do want to add a caveat to that. That's me as a therapist, as a physiotherapist, as a physical therapist, me as a parent, the reason why I have this attitude now is because I realized that I might've done that as a parent. Um, you know, uh, for example, my daughter wanted to act. It's like, I'm okay with that. And we did, we sent her to drama workshops and all the rest of it. Um, but also felt the need to explain the statistics that are out there, um, and the work required. Um, so yeah, I, I do want to say that part of that change in attitude has come because I realized that I don't, I naturally don't have that. That is not something that is natural. That is something that is learned. But the flip side of that is that if somebody as obtuse as me can learn something like that, well, then I think most people can learn something like that too. Uh, you know, just admitting that that was a mistake in the way mm -hmm. that I did it because I wanted to protect my kids from the statistical <laughs> rareness of what they're trying to achieve. Um, well, you're trying to save them from that disappointment. And, yeah. you know, I feel like it's almost like, you know, when you don't, when you're studying for an exam and you're like, you, you, you tell people, you tell your friends, oh, I was up partying, like I didn't study enough so that when you don't do well in the exam, there's like an excuse for it. It's almost like we're trying to protect our kids from that disappointment or that shame or whatnot from like their dreams not being realized. But that's, I agree. As, as a parent, I, I always try to explain that as well. And my kids are young. I have a three-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old almost and a one-year-old. So, it, you know, I can see myself as they're aging um, really balancing that role between like teaching and then letting them learn for themselves. Yeah. Um, I think too many parents, many people, whether it's parents or healthcare professionals, you know, if we're doing the protection for them, they don't learn it in the same way. Like it's almost better if they learn it because then they learn that lesson. Whereas if you're constantly teaching that lesson, they're not really truly learning um, themselves. Yeah. You're a wiser parent than me. <laughs> I I honestly think that I'm a great parent, not all the time, but I think that I'm a great parent because I'm thinking about these things that I talked to my parents about it. They never thought, taught, thought of these things. They just had kids because that was the next thing to do after you get married. Um, and because I think, you know, we're older now having kids and I'm, I'm an introspective person in general and I like thinking about these things, um, it's it's a constant kind of work in work in progress to try to show up as the best parent to let my kids shine as themselves. Um, and I like using that same approach with my clients too, because I think everyone has their strengths and everyone has their interests. And I can tell you that I think Pilates is kind of boring and, you know, um, I don't get people who do this all the time or that all the time but they're if that's their goal then fantastic I want to support them to get there um even if I don't have that same interest and that brings me to a, a kind of a contested topic about aesthetics and postpartum and with the diastasis in particular um and I find that a difficult conversation to navigate with some because people are um, some people are just like, I want to look the way I did before I had babies. I want my abs to be flat. 
And even if their diastasis is like two centimeters or not that large via, you know, the gap or and even the, the depth, it's the aesthetic they're chasing. It's I want to look like I'm not pregnant anymore. I want to look like I have flat abs. Um, how do you navigate that conversation with people? Um, or is this something that c- people come to you with? Um, I think the, I think the easiest way to say that I navigate it is that, um, in creating that safe space is I often say that it's okay to not like the way that you look, if that's part of it. Um, because there is a lot of judgment about that. You know, people are told that they're vain or, um, you know, Mm. why are you being so superficial? But I know that it's not about that. Um, and, and so like, I think just being able to, and, and people test the waters, right? People will say things to test you. And I don't feel offended that people do that. People need to feel safe. And so they say things to see your reaction, to see whether it's okay to talk about that with you and how you're going to respond. And so when people raise that, um, then yeah, it's like, okay, then that's, and that's okay. Um, the thing that I, you know, like a strong value for me would be truth, um, and Mm. justice. And so the thing that I don't like is, is, uh, having to cover an aesthetic goal um, by saying that your diastasis is is the reason why the reason why you need to have an abdominoplasty is because of the low back pain um, and the 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 risk of pelvic organ prolapse or dysfunction because of it. Um, like that's just not true from the evidence. Um, and so I understand that people have to do that for different reasons, culturally, society, you know, societal expectations, mm-hmm. all the rest of it. I understand it. I don't like it. Um, and I want people to be able to just say, listen, I, I just really don't like that. I don't like all the questions. I don't like the looks. I don't like how it makes me feel. And so and I want people to be just able to do that instead of having to generate reasons or excuses and then hold on to them because otherwise it's the uncomfortable truth. Um, and until we have a society that has that as being okay, then yeah, mm. I understand why people do it. So I also don't judge people for, for doing that. I, I would say that it's up to us as providers to not spread, you know, misinformation. Misinformation, yeah. I mean, I think the the difficulty is that there are programs or there are people who promote, you know, let's heal your diastasis in the in the sense of like you're gonna close your gap, you're not gonna have you're gonna have flat abs again. And like that's sold to people as like an aesthetic program. But you can be really strong, you can have no body fat, but you might still not have perfectly flat abs once you've had babies. Uh, and hey, lots of people even before they had babies. And so it's it's kind of navigating that, um, navigating that conversation and kind of saying like, okay, this these things have sold that, but it's not fully true. 
And, you know, this is what we know with strength training, you will get stronger. Will it change your physique? Maybe. Will it? What, you know, it has so much more to do with so many other factors, genetics, how your body heals, your nutrition, your sleep, and all of these other components. And I think that, um, I think you're right. You know, I don't blame anyone for hating the way their body looks postpartum if they have a belly because our society has conditioned them from birth to want to have, you know, that this is attractive, that having thin, you know, this type of build is attractive. And if you don't fit that mold, then you're no longer worthy as a woman, right? This is the messaging that has been sold to us since we've been little, depending on the part of the world that you live in. And it's no wonder that so many people have babies and their their whole body, you know, body image and mental health even suffers because they no, no longer look like the way that they used to. Um, and... It's been it's been tricky. I find that especially for people who were thin, who did have that, you know, desired social norm aesthetic to then go from that to then, you know, having a diastasis, a huge diastasis is a big, um, big change. And I think you're right. The conversation is less about it's not just the body image, it's the underlying stuff that they have going on that's then reflected as I need these abs back and then my life will be fixed right? It's kind of like holding on to that, um, that as their hope. So, and it doesn't even have to be a conversation that we have to have because I'm not their psychologist. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, they don't need to know about the, what I think of some of those programs that are promising things. Um, you know, it's, it's not what I, it's not about the message I want to push. It's mm. about what, what do you want? What do you need from me? How can I help support you towards your goals? We, if we just keep coming back to that, then mm. that guides the conversation, right? It, it, it guides the treatment too. Yeah. And, and, you know, if, if they think that it's more important to look a certain way than to be able to do certain things, well, then that's their choice, you know? That's their mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's, it's not that I'm condoning anything dangerous. Um, of course, if I see things that start raising flags, then I will suggest referrals that they can consider and all the rest of it. But um, in general, if somebody wants to work hard towards having a certain aesthetic, who am I to say that that's wrong for them? Um you know, that, that goes back into that patriarchal system that we're trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, you asked how I navigate that. I, I, I think I navigate it by finding out what they want and what it means to them. And then if, because often people have contradictory type goals and they say things that are contradictory. So... You know, it's important to feel strong, but I want to look a certain way. How do you feel about weights? Well, it's going to make me look bulky. Okay. So this is interesting. (laughs) So hypertrophy is different to strength, right? You can look strong. You can have all show, no go. Um, And that's probably the predominant uh, type of training out there, hypertrophy type training. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas strength training it's it's why you can have the wiry looking person who is able to do so do so much and have somebody who looks big and strong 
be really big and strong for about five to ten seconds and then that's it mm-hmm. like they can't carry something 100 meters because they just they're all show no go whereas you got people that look like they wouldn't be able to pick it up and they pick it up and they carry it for 100 meters you know this is this is um this was this used to be me back when i was in my my prime i was like real thin didn't look like I could do stuff and I used to always like pump out the most amount of pull-ups and all all the like traditional exercises but also I used to be really strong and people assume that there's this aesthetic to looking strong you know you, ne- you need to have big muscles but that's just not my body type and it would take me so much work to get there I don't think I I would never that would not be my goal but when my husband and I were we had our honeymoon in India I'm Indian and he's not so I took him to India for the for our honeymoon and there's people who are like real thin they're throwing up huge bales of hay on their head, riding a bike. And you're like, where are the muscles? But they're still strong, right? It's like, it's so interesting how we are so programmed to think that it's like aesthetic defines your, you know, your fitness or your strength or your abilities, but it's it's not true. Um, and it's also interesting, you know, I run a postpartum return to exercise program, which is an eight-week group coaching program for new moms. And there are everyone has different goals. Some do have aesthetic goals, and some are like, no, I just want to feel good, and I want to be able to do chase after my kids and get strong. Um, and one thing that I usually talk about is like a referral to therapy for people who do have strong body image um, issues. Is just talk about what it is, what's causing that, how it makes you feel, because. Even if you are chasing those aesthetic goals, it may take you a long time to get there. And in the meantime, I don't want you to hate yourself or feel like you're not worthy um, for the length of time it takes you to maybe reach your goals. And yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would benefit in general from going for counseling or, you know, seeking mental health support postpartum. Um, One of the things that I also that we also did in our in our course we talked about diastasis but we also talked about prolapse a lot and I'm the fortunate person who has all of that and um, what I'm realizing is just how common they are because I when I studied physiotherapy I'm like you I'm an orthopedic physio we did not even learn prolapse and I the first time I heard of it was after I had my daughter three and a bit years ago and I was kind of shocked. I was like, how do I not know this as a physiotherapist? How do I not know that, you know, 50% of vaginal births, there's an element of prolapse? Like, we treat women every day. How is this not common knowledge? Um, and what could we do differently if it was common knowledge? How can we better support these people? Um, in your experience with prolapse, what ends up being some of the key things that actually helps people with prolapse um kind of key pieces of advice or training or strengthening Uh, it really depends on what they're going through um i think the first thing to recognize is that um whilst like i look at a lot of doctors right and how they treat people and the way that they treat people in terms of behavior is often very flippant or dismissive or um, just not very sensitive often. Often. We're just Mm. painting broad brushstrokes here, right? Um, And I know lots of great doctors who don't do that. Um, But often that's the report, right? They said, ah, it's just normal. Everybody has it. And so I try to take what people are being told and try to understand why. And... 
you know, why might a doctor say, oh, that's normal, everybody has it? Well, in the research, it's really prevalent, uh, you know? Uh, to them, like, that's all they do all day is do public health type stuff. It is really common because everybody they see has some degree of this. And to them, it's actually not very shocking. Um, mm -hmm. But to the person experiencing it for the first time, even somebody educated like you and me, we didn't get to talk this stuff. Like, what? What? That's a thing? Um, and it's just mm -hmm. not polite conversation. Oh, guess what happened today? I went to the gynecologist and they told me I've got a pelvic organ prolapse. Check that out. The cervix is coming down nearly outside. <laughs> oh, it's like <laughs> casual conversation. It's like, oh, yeah, you have a, you know, you have a prolapse. And I'm just like my, my – it's like when you hear this diagnosis. And I know – now when I talk about it, I sound dramatic. But I know what I went through back then. And I know what my clients go through too when you hear that word you hear the description and then you hop on Google when you go home and you you see the images of like things coming out and you almost always end up feeling worse symptoms after you hear, hear the diagnosis and it's it's true doctors hear it all the time I think pelvic PTs too they're just like yeah everyone has prolapse a lot of people have it no big deal but each person needs to be seen still for who they are we're trying to normalize it, right? We're trying to say, okay, like we, we realize from the research that lots of people have a stage one and it doesn't seem to be too bad. And yet people might have a stage one and be suffering terribly with their symptoms and people with a stage two or three, uh, they don't even experience much in the way of symptoms that stops them. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, to the question of how do I navigate it? Well, how much do we want to talk about it? Um, I, I think a key point is understanding the current status quo and the extremes, the very dismissive type of reaction versus the very focused, you've got to be careful because one wrong move and this is going to get worse for the rest of your life type stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's important to recognize. If you don't understand the lay of the land, then you don't really understand what people might be exposed to. And again, it's mm -hmm. not about what, what, what I think, although what I think hopefully is in line with the research. Um, so that's number <laughs> one. Number two, um, you know, how do I navigate it? I think it's important to explain that just because you have symptoms in the area doesn't mean that it's necessarily from the diagnosis that you're given. So you might have a stage one or a stage two prolapse and you do feel heaviness. Um, it doesn't mean that the heaviness is from the prolapse. It might actually be because of the way that you use your pelvic floor. I've had quite a number of people tell me that the heaviness goes away when they relax their pelvic floor. Now, mm -hmm. that's counterintuitive. <laughs> that's counterintuitive yeah. because you're supposed to support your prolapse and that takes away your prolapse symptoms. And yet you relax, the, you relax your pelvic floor, let some descent occur, and the symptoms go away. That does not make sense if you believe that the prolapse is the reason for your symptoms. Um, I think mm. some of the heaviness and the tiredness that you can get in your pelvic floor could be mistaken for pelvic organ prolapse symptoms. And then there are people who really do have those symptoms that are from a central sensitivity point of view. So their whole system is just a little bit more sensitive 
and they feel more. Now, these people make amazing dancers and instructors because they can feel the minute changes in their body. And like everything, it has a double-edged sword. Um, you know, they, consequently, they feel every little change down there. And when you're told that you have a prolapse and that it's, you know, really bad, say, then, yeah, they, they begin to get anxious. But like diastasis, pelvic organ prolapse, stress urinary incontinence, sometimes I wonder if our reaction to the diagnosis feeds the symptoms that we're getting. Mm -hmm. um, so navigating that discussion is, is important in that, well, what do we know from the research and what do you want to do? Because quite often they're told that it's the end of everything that they want to do. I've been told never to pick up more than five kilos, two kilos sometimes, um, two kilos, five pounds. It's like nothing. Your kettle weighs mm -hmm. more than that if you've got everybody over. <laughs> like you're not allowed to pick up your kettle full of water. You can't mm. pick up a saucepan that's got stuff in it or a fry pan because that's going to exceed your limit. Do you know what I mean? We have cast iron pots and pans and I literally did not lift them because I was scared to. I was like, I can't wash these because I, I don't want to make it worse. And again, this is someone who's educated in physiotherapy, but when it's your own body going through it and you get told by a professional, um, you know, certain things, if they're causing symptoms, it can make it worse. And then understanding that just because you have symptoms does not mean it's getting worse, like you said. Personally, for me, it was all my tone. It was my tension, trying to hold it all in, you know, to prevent it from getting worse. And that was actually creating those symptoms. And um, I see that in a lot of people too. Um, it's interesting. There's just, there's so much that people don't know about their own bodies until they have a child. Uh, I think that if we understood our bodies more you know, understood how they, they're going to change throughout the rest of our lives. Understand that, you know, as we age, certain things are going to evolve and stretch and that's normal. I think there would be less shock postpartum because it's kind of like, it's like puberty. It's like, okay, you know, your body's going to go through changes. We all expect that. So when you grow overnight or <laughs> you're not surprised, but postpartum, I think a lot of it is not talked about. The people I notice online who are very, um, you know, sharing their fitness journeys are traditionally the people who quote unquote bounce back. And so from a client's perspective or from a regular mom's perspective, you're watching that and you're like, that's not my journey. And that's why I love some of the people that you've, um, you've worked with, you know, Lisa and um, Claire too, I think, right? Um, that you share their journeys. Uh, it's amazing because it shows that they can be super strong but you're not necessarily going to look like you did pre-baby. You know, it's, those are two different goals, like you said. You know, your one goal might be your aesthetic, one goal might be getting strong, and those are two different goals, and they may not coexist at the same time. And sometimes they do. Um, and there was something else with prolapse. During your course, you know, it was amazing to me. I remember seeing Nicola lifting that dumbbell and... The barbell? The belief... What's that? Oh, not dumbbell, barbell. Um, <laughs> the belief that we have in ourselves. You know, can you talk about how you see from your perspective, how do you know, or not how do you know, but how do you see people kind of doubt and their fears and their, um, yeah, self, self doubts? How does that play into their fitness and their abilities? Yeah. Um, 
I think part of it is that I just have experience watching people lift. Um, and so you get a sense of what people can and can't do. That's number one um, for Nicola, who is happy to talk about this stuff. So um, <clears throat> I don't mind mentioning it. Um, she was having, she was unable to lift 135 without like pain. Like it was painful and she was unable to lift it. And, um, you know, she worked up to 240, I believe, um, without pain. Um, but when she set, but when she set correctly, so switching everything Mm -hmm. on and, you know, tensioning, like she had pain, um, I suppose part of it is that I just know that it's possible, right? Like I know that it's possible that people can do things without pain. And this is one of the reasons why I just know that that's possible Mm. because I've had that experience. And that's part of the reason why it's important for other people to see that as an experience as well. Um, It's a lot scarier online than it is in person because in person I have a 3D, a 4D really because time I have the time to see and look and move and and get the angles that I want. But I realized in the end it's doable. I'm just not used to doing it online as much as in person. So, you know, I just, uh, you know, about eight years ago I started doing a lot more online stuff. So uh, practicing practicing is really important. So how do I know? Understanding certain things is helpful. Uh, Understanding the person in front of you. Uh, Mm. Understanding that that mass moves mass. So, you know, if whatever your body weight is, I know in general, in general, most people can lift up around that in a deadlift, just as a general rule of thumb. Um, untrained, most people. Most wow. people. Yeah, you, yeah. I, this is. I think ten, ten percent less sometimes, but in general, yeah, totally. Uh, well, and then we see people who are dead, like practicing deadlifts with like five pounds or ten pounds, mm-hmm. right? And you're like, I know you can do more. And you know, I, like in my postpartum group, I, I get people lifting. You know. They're signing up, let's say, six weeks postpartum. You know, they're pretty fresh still. And these aren't people who lift heavy weights. These are people who are active, but they're not heavy, heavy lifters. Uh, and I, it, it's amazing watching people lift weights and finding that self-confidence in themselves, saying like, oh, I couldn't do this the first day. And just giving myself that time and experience and practice, I can lift so much more now. Um, but we tend to, in the physio world anyways, I can only speak to my experience as a physio in Canada and Toronto. Um, it's so limiting. We limit our clients so much because we assume that they cannot do more than they actually can, especially our female clients. And then add to that layer, especially if they're female and a person of color, it's like, mm, you're not that strong. You're not going to be that strong. You probably can't lift that weight. It's like we're deciding for them what they can do instead of letting them do what their bodies actually can do. And I see that bias in a big way um, in the training that I've had and just in my experience kind of working with people and working with physiotherapists. Um, I find that fitness trainers, fitness coaches are actually much better uh, than physios in that sense. Way more experience. And they're actually progressing people to like full strength versus just rehab, which is 
often that traditional physiotherapy, okay, we get you out of pain and then like you're, you're good to go. But then that person is still left with like no strength overall and needing to build everything back up. Um, it's interesting. I realize that I have a bias about people of color or where they come from. Um, yeah, I just assume certain things like if you're, if you're from India or Asia or, um, Eastern Europe, South America, or of, um, you know, African-American descent, I assume you're going to pick up more than the average white person because that's just what I see. And do you know what I mean? That's, that's a bias Mm -hmm. that I have. Um, just because of the, the, when you look at people who do things now, right or wrong, obviously you catch that and you say, Mm -hmm. okay, that's a bias that I have, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things. I have a bias that Asian people are more flexible in general than non-Asian people. Um, you know, I was going to say, that's probably true from what I've seen. Um, I, I struggle to find the research to support it, but, um, the hard part with research, I'm going to hop on that is like, what, who's, who's doing the research? And what are their biases and who are their stu- who are they studying? Well, and who's replying to the to the Yeah, who's replying? Who's coming into the research? How are they getting these people? You know, like yeah. yeah there's so many biases I, I there. I think we self select into the sports that we suit though, right? Like people yeah. who are flexible tend to tend to self select into dancing and Pilates and yoga and acrobatics and all the stuff that requires natural flexibility, you know, but um, and people who are super stiff, they tend not to choose that as something as a kid that they want to keep pursuing. But there's not, there are always those outliers, you know, that, that mm-hmm. do. So, uh, yeah, I, like I think generalizations are made because it's cognitively easier to generalize. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what you do with, with your, your assumptions and your biases that, that matters more, mm-hmm. I think. I think to deny that they're going to happen is folly. I think they're always mm-hmm. going to happen. It's they're always going to happen. It's what you do with it that matters. Yeah. And I think I've started to realize myself, my own biases based on um, my experiences. So not just my experiences as a, like a therapist, a physiotherapist, but also my life experiences and what I've seen. And so this is something that was hilarious. So my mom, you know, She's older, she's Indian, and I had made the assumption that she was not that strong because she never worked worked out, quote unquote. She never lifted weights. And there would be, while I was rehabbing, or not rehabbing, I was recovering, and I was doing all these ab exercises, core exercises, deadlifts, and I don't have a full gym at home. I don't have a barbell, so I, I have like 50 pounds as my max. And I remember first doing it and working up to that. And I was like, oh, you can't lift that, telling my mom, like, you know, be careful, lift the 35s, right? And like, this is a bias to my own mom. She had no problem lifting the 50 pounds. And she was kind of like, this is heavy. And I was in shock. And I was like, I had no idea you could do that. And then I'm watching her do all these ab exercises, no difficulty, without ever having worked out a day in her life. She's very active, but not traditional in the gym, um, and I, she's like, yeah, I've lived a life where I've like worked and, you know, worked in the, you know, 
when she grew up and throughout her throughout her life. So I think we assume that the only people who are strong are the people who have access to a full gym, access to traditional sports. But I think in many parts of the world, Asia, you know, parts, yeah, parts across the world, people are just strong because they're living lives where they have to be. Um, you know, we didn't have elevators in our in our apartment building growing up. So when we were kids, they were carrying us up and down the stairs. And with with whatever else they had to bring, here we have elevators for everything. So there, that itself is leading to different strengths and abilities that we're uh, developing as parents. It's also hard to parse out who suffered because of that lack of elevators, for example, and who benefited because survivor bias would would mm. would mean that you're seeing the people who survived and the people who mm-hmm. got injured by that. They're living on the ground floor now because they got injured or you know what I mean like it's difficult to say what is and isn't helpful um but again you know to say to your mum that she can't pick up 35 or 50 pounds like that's where I start with people it's like unless they're like in raging agony like I start with close to half their body weight just because they're already shocked by it but I know that they can probably do more um you know, a lot of the time it's it's whatever beliefs they have. But again, mm-hmm. in general, if I get somebody who weighs 50 kilos, 60 kilos, 70 kilos coming in to see me, um, and then they tell me that they can't lift that much, I'm like, interested, why? Why can't you lift that much? Mm. You know, I had a guy here, he weighs 80 kilos and, and his max deadlift was 80 kilos. It's like, you've been training for a while, man. Um, like, why is that your max? And it was about mm. pain. But what he was doing mm. was squeezing so hard that right. he was giving himself pain. Um, so, you know, he realized that, um, that he needed, he came and saw me recently. He'd been seeing some other people. Um, and they gave him all the core stability. You got a set, you got a brace, you got a tension, all the other stuff. And, I saw him and I said, I don't have a problem with all of that. It's just that I watch you and you do it like it's your maximum and we're not close to your maximum. You tell me what your maximum is and we're not close to it. Why don't you just back off a bit and just do the minimum of what Mm. you need to achieve it, not the maximum because harder is not better. And uh, yeah. (laughs) It's like your experience before knowledge. I think people really do have to have that physical experience going through it, seeing that they can do it in order to believe it. And um, I think that's it's interesting being on social media because I'm I get a lot of DMs messages from people with prolapse, and they're like, "I don't think I'll ever be able to do this again or lift again," and they're so worried. But when I ask, you know, are you getting support? Are you are you exercising? Are you strength training? They're not doing that. And I think reading more about it doesn't make you better. It's actually physically moving your body and seeing that you're able to trust yourself again and trust your body again. Leaning on the fences, not crashing through the fences. Yeah, yes, yeah. So that's a great analogy for those who don't know. It's, you know, if you're in the middle of a barnyard right and there's a fence around you you want to lean close to that fence to start to build your um your 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 strength your your abilities but you don't want to blow right through that where you're creating all these symptoms and flaring yourself up and then losing trust in your body because you're not 
progressing in a way where you're um, kind of steady and consistent. And staying in the farmhouse doesn't mean that you're going to move the fences. To to increase the capacity, the abilities that you have, you have to go to the edge. And we've known this. This is strength and conditioning. This is how it is. Yeah. And this is is in in traditional strength and conditioning too. And I just think that element of um, postpartum where you end up with, you know, incontinence or diastasis or prolapse, I think part of the problem is too, they're not seen as athletic injuries. They're seen as a women's health problem, which it is obviously, you know, in a lot of cases, but if somebody has a shoulder shoulder injury, you know that they're strength training. They're physically rehabbing that shoulder so they can get back to playing tennis. But with postpartum, it's almost like, ooh, you're a fragile little flower. We'll just give you some very basics. And you shouldn't want to be an athlete anymore. You're a mom, right? So it's like going, going deeper and breaking some of those stigmas on what motherhood actually means and that there are moms. There are many moms who want to continue being athletes and they should if they want to uh, and how can we as professionals support support themselves support them in getting if, to those goals if you do want to retire and you don't have any more athletic goals and you want to be the best mom that you could be that is a hundred percent totally valid as well you know like mm-hmm. you know expecting athletes to get back to being athletic is just as unfair as expecting somebody to you know give up their job because now you're a mom and you shouldn't shouldn't mm-hmm. be working part-time you should focus something like it's unfair to place what we want on other people um and and you know supporting people in what they want to do is super important mm-hmm. i love that uh I, when i i sent you a little form and you had said something about um kind of moms are way stronger than people give them credit for and i think that that is so true um and I gave my mom very little credit, clearly. <laughs> not since then, but uh, pr- before that, I, I had not given her enough credit for how strong she really is. And I think that in some ways, the view that we see our own mothers by as women, you know, it also reflects on ourselves. It's like I wasn't seeing myself as strong as I actually am um, because of my own biases. And I think that, can you can you kind of, can you say that in your own words so that people who are listening can really understand how strong they really are? Right. So strength to me has two components. You've got to have the hardware. You've got to have the muscles to do it. Um, you've got to have bones that can withstand it, joints that can take it, uh, muscles that can pull the forces. But you also have to have the coordination, the neuromuscular drive, Um And that is also one of those physical things that people forget. That's why you can not look strong and be very strong because that neuromuscular drive might be optimizing what you have at your disposal. So that's, you know, that's the the biological side of things. But then there's the psychological side of things as well. Um, So do you think that you're weak? Because if you do, you're probably going to be whatever weak is to you. Um, uh, You know, the... There are people with unrealistic beliefs. That's not a particular strategy that I like. I like to be realistic. Uh, there are mm-hmm. people that'll go, I can't do that, so I won't bother trying. Whereas if if it was me, I, I tend to say, I know I can't do that, but I'm going to try anyway because I don't mm-hmm. mind failing, right? I don't mind making mm-hmm. a mistake. I, being a beginner or being not, you know, excelling at yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I, 
I feel that. I feel that. I remember postpartum this time. I was riding my bike up this really steep hill. My first time up, I was like, this is huge. I'll probably end up walking up. And I did. I just walked up. And my second time going out on the ride, a week later, it's not like I was significantly stronger. I was like, you know what? I can do this. And I just literally told myself, I can do this. I can do this. I'm doing this. And I've got this. And I just really honed in on like amping myself up in a positive way because I knew I could actually do it the first time I was just holding myself back. I was I was scared that I would fail and I didn't want to try. So I held myself back. And the second time I did it, and it was so much easier just because I had gone into it with an expectation of not even success, but an expectation that I was going to give it my best. Um, and sometimes in in rehab, it can be in recovery, postpartum, it can be scary because it's an unknown. You don't know how well you can feel because you you don't see it yet. You're not sleeping well. There's other things going on in your life too. It's not like your entire life is dedicated to re- rehabilitating. It's you're caring for a new human, your family dynamic changes, you're exhausted, you might be breastfeeding and all of that. So I think it's it's a really important transition in people's lives and it's really special to be able to work with work with those people. And uh, I love that it's psychological and physical strength uh, and neuromuscular strength. Yeah, so biological, psychological, and and with the psychological, it's not the unrealistic. It's changing what the metric is because success shouldn't be the metric. Otherwise, your goal is too big. Like you're reaching for a goal too early. Um, if, if you're going to use success as a metric, make sure that your goal is achievable. Um, Mm. but I think that's why the value of I tried and no matter what result I get is to me, that's what develops resilience, right? The ability to get up and go again and try again. Yeah. So that's the second part. So there's the, the physiological, the biological, the psychological, as well as the sociological, and we need to make it okay for people. So if, if I have a culture, a belief of, you you know, just because you're a postpartum mother doesn't mean that you are automatically weaker. Um, That helps because to me, it's confusing to say, well, why can't, why can't she, you know, she shouldn't be doing that. Why not? Well, because she (laughs) just had a baby and it's like, and like, does her risk of certain injuries increase? Sure. But can we navigate that? Yes. It doesn't mean that she's not strong. If you start with a baseline that people are weak and incapable, that they can't adapt to the situation and that that even if something happens that they're not resilient, they're going to be broken forever. Like if you treat people like that, that comes through in your actions, which is why I teach SCAR, strong, capable, adaptable, resilient, because it's really important to remember that if we just believe that as a starting point, assess what scar looks like for that person we are already we already have a positive pathway forwards um because we come from a place of let's see what you are capable of so that we can see what strong looks like for you right now so you know realizing that that most women most mothers are stronger than they think they are that's the experience before knowledge i can blow smoke up your ass all day i can tell you tell the cows come home that you're strong but unless you feel it you don't feel it Mm -hmm. so yeah I just ask people to do things I don't tell them what the weights are I just get them to do things 
And then mm-hmm. it's like, oh my goodness, that's more than I thought I could do. And then that's all that's needed. And then the dams break and, and the belief that, well, maybe this is possible takes place. I didn't have to tell them because I'm a physio with 25 years experience and I've done this my whole <laughs> career and I've seen thousands of people and you should trust me because I will be your savior and guide you through this crisis and get you stronger. And you're so- No, that's just an authority thing. You know, don't, don't make that mistake. Like realize it for yourself. And the harder thing to do is to create that space for people to do that so that people can decide, yeah, okay. Yeah, let's see what's possible instead of, oh, oh no, I saw those pictures with the red crosses. I shouldn't be doing that. And I get a lot of that and they say, okay, well, that's fair enough. You shouldn't do that. Uh, How difficult is it? What's something that you do in your everyday life that you don't experience things with? And it's often something harder than Mm -hmm. the exercise that they said that they weren't allowed to do. Like crunches or, you know, something. Yeah, you're not allowed to do crunches. And yet the pressure on your pelvic floor from standing up from a chair is more than that on average. So what are we going to do with that? You know, do we go with the evidence? I think we should do individual assessment. But knowing that standing up from a chair, they get people after having prolapse surgery, uh, sling surgery for incontinence, they get people to stand up and walk that is more pressure than lifting your head and shoulders up to have a look at what's at your feet, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't understand where some of this stuff comes from. I do understand that crunches is problematic for some people, which is why individual assessment is needed. But it's likely the way that they're doing the crunches as opposed to... um, The actual Yeah, as opposed to just the Mm -hmm. exercise itself being the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And for me, that like, for me, that experience was during our course when you asked me to jump to try jumping and see if I could. And I had not jumped in years because I had prolapse and I had symptoms and I was afraid of making it worse. And I was kind of like, sure, I'll try. And I did it. And, you know, at first I was kind of like gingerly jumping because it was awkward. My motor patterns were off because I hadn't jumped in so long. And then I just jumped and I realized that I lived, that I survived and that I had, for me, I was fortunate I did not have symptoms. And I realized that like those um, expectations or those kind of that fear was holding me back more. And part of that was, of course, the practitioner that I had gone to. um, But also I think that many people hold themselves back because of something that somebody has told them. And one thing that I always will say to people now is if something someone's told you doesn't sit well with you find someone else because you're not you're not you know gated to that one physio or fitness coach you can see you can shop around and see somebody who jives with you who will help you achieve your goals and I I think I should have done that looking back now maybe. because I know different maybe like in in all fairness to the person that that you saw they're doing the best with what they had and what they've been taught. So, you know, I think that's important to acknowledge. She had your very best interests at heart. Um, and I think that that's very important to acknowledge. Like I find very few people are out there to take advantage of people. Most people actually want to help. So, I think that, you know. I think the problem arises in that there's so much shift in, 
knowledge shift in like what the research shows even in the past five years and if you had a baby like I've had clients who who had their first baby nine ten years ago and the information that they were given now we know different and you know in five years from now the information might switch again and so we're doing the best with what we know now and I think that um, that's a really that's a really important point because who knows I could have gone to see someone else and had the exact same same situation but realizing that we're actually so much stronger than we're we leave our, lead ourselves to think um, if we were able to create a life like we're pretty freaking strong you know yeah. and um, we're carrying that baby I was getting up from the floor that's the other thing that increases pressure right getting up off the floor which new moms do all the time their child's on the floor doing tummy time you're sitting with them you get up off the floor with them that's hard work Um, that's harder than doing a crunch for many people so let's train ourselves in all those ways yeah train people to lift up 35 pounds right off the bat you know because that's what they're doing when you pick up a stroller out of the car car, seat in the car seat all of those things but on the practitioner thing as well just uh, one more point um Mm -hmm. I, I also try to remember that keeping up with the current information is difficult. Um, mm-hmm. Changing what you do is difficult because if your identity is in, I do give the best information that I can, and then you find out what you've been giving is wrong or potentially wrong, it is easier to say that the new information is wrong and all mm-hmm. of my results are right and therefore it's hard to change. And lastly, like lots, like the majority of pelvic health physios are women, and many of them got into the practice uh, because they had issues themselves. Um, themselves. But nowadays, there's a lot more that just goes straight into it without having had kids uh, or, or prior issues. Um, you know, they're busy too. It's not easy to keep up with the research. Like I wouldn't be able to do it without the complete support of my wife and 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 my family, being older, you know. Um, so, mm-hmm. the the fact that people aren't up to date is because people have a budget as well. They've got to choose which courses they're doing, um, and I get that. So, um, you know, I just hope that we just keep putting a positive message out there and and helping people make that transition and acknowledging that all the positive stuff that they've done and what they do can continue, but have a think about the reasons why it worked as well as how to change that message, uh, how to change the advice so that you're still saying the same thing, but the way that you say it might make all the difference. Uh, So yeah, I think that's really Yes, because I think ultimately no physio or no coach is telling people to get weaker, right? Or like not live life that the way they want to it's well they want to see them improve they do want to see they do they want the best for them i think that's where the fear aspect comes in is like how are we wording things to make sure that that person is hearing things that they need to hear or that they want to hear um in a way that's not inducing more fear and anxiety in them uh and if if that person is not hearing that message how can you change the way you're communicating to make sure that you know your message is or you know that it's more clear for them and I think ultimately going back to their goals why are they there what do they want to do 
um, is important. And I think many postpartum people are treated like a monolith. Oh, you're postpartum. So we're going to do those standard Kegels and squats and monster walks and bridges and see ya. But everyone's coming in with a different baseline and everyone's coming in with a different history and goals that they want to get back to. Like you said, some are happy just, you know, returning to status quo and some are ha- some are not. Some want to return back to elite level sports or recreational sports. And it's important to navigate that. How do you find that you being a male in this in this field, does that pose um, or has that been an issue for you in the past? Are people kind of uncomfortable or questioning how well you know what you know? Um, obviously, maybe not now because you have somewhat of a reputation. Um, but how about in your earlier years? Um, I think the hardest have been pelvic physios because, um, you know, I don't do internal examinations. Um, mm. But also, I don't pretend that what I do replaces that. So, you know... It, it was almost it was always the I don't get it, it doesn't make sense to me type stuff. Um, so you know, there was that, and then like people have people have male obstetricians, and so when they get sent to the physio by the obstetrician, it's usually not a problem. Um, so yeah, but that's so you true. know if people had a choice between me and a female and they were looking on the internet to see who they see they're probably going to choose the female the female therapist and i'm okay with that um Mm -hmm. you know i don't need to see everybody there's plenty of work for everybody and i'm happy for people to to try and if if they feel like uh they're, they're not improving or or they they want to try something different i'm always here for that you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm always here as an option and I don't like wasting people's time. If I don't think it's right, if it's a good fit, then I've got plenty of other people I can refer to. Um, mm. And, you know, it's, it's not personal. It's not personal. Mm-hmm. If you don't like my style and you don't like how we're working, then I, I'd appreciate it if you tell me. Um, but I'm certainly not somebody who who desperately wants to keep you and all the rest of it. Like I'm just interested yeah. in the best for you, just like most people are. And, um, you know, uh, so the difficulty being male, it's like, oh yeah, I just, I just admit what I can and can't know. I'll never know what it's like to birth a baby vaginally, but I've seen people do it. I've watched cesarean section. I've helped countless women in their antenatal and postnatal journeys, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I'm going to feel what they feel, but it also doesn't mean that I can't help them. You don't them. need to. I does, yeah. yeah. In fact, sometimes it's more helpful because I don't have that experience that may present a barrier, mm-hmm. right? The bias, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, if somebody has had a traumatic birth and they're a physiotherapist, for example, and then somebody comes in with the same traumatic birth, that might be a problem, um, consciously or unconsciously. So, you know, I, I don't have that. Uh, yeah. And, and so it comes with, with pluses and minuses, and I, I can only work on the things that I can control. And it just is what it is. I don't like it when things that are untrue are said. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know to 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 imply that because I'll never know I won't ever understand and it's like it doesn't mean I can't help you know 
Yeah. And I think it's interesting if people would say that because it's not like I'm expecting my dentist to have experienced the same, you know, cavity that I had or you know what I mean? Like we're not expecting our whatever, uh, insert other profession to have the exact physical experience of going through it. Like they're trained to work with that. Does maybe having some experience help? I find that having the experience of being a mother, how it helps is a better understanding of like the big picture of maybe what a mother goes through. Um, Only if guys aren't paying attention. And let's face it, guys aren't paying attention most of the time. I get it. But I've paid attention and I listen and I see and I acknowledge. Uh, Like to me, it would be just as sexist as saying because you're a woman who can't lift this X amount of weight, you can't possibly Mm -hmm. help me improve my lift. Like, yeah, that's just dumb too. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. So, Or there's women who are pelvic PTs and work in this field who haven't had kids or who don't want kids. And yeah. that's unfair f- even for them. Like th- there's no reason you need to have a child no. to work with this, no. this population. And I, I wish I saw more men in this field because I think traditionally as an ortho PT back from, you know, I have an ortho PT background and there's so many men who are ortho PTs and they don't really have that same um, understanding of pelvic health and how it may affect people in their recovery to sport and i think that um it'd be it'd be great to see more people more men attending your courses yeah i can tell you it's scary it's scary i walked into i remember very clearly walking into a room with 16 pelvic health physios on a course and i was the only guy and then you know i said that i work out of a crossfit gym and help women with pelvic floor issues to do crossfit site type stuff and it felt Mm -hmm. like i was under attack but i was okay with that because like you know i think i have the personality that it doesn't matter like you know (laughs) people taught me people taught me in sport it doesn't do anything to me like they go ah you think you're so good and like no i don't actually and that's okay i'm gonna smash you you might and that's okay too i'm just gonna try my best and you know and it's the same so i was copying all this flack and it's just because people don't understand and mm-hmm. that's cool i get it it came from a place of concern because they do see a lot of problems from people who you know at that time were uh the coaches didn't understand or they didn't want to know oh that's a women's issue well don't talk to me about that well there's also a negative connotation with crossfit that a lot of people don't understand you know crossfit so it's like i can i can see that and i also i think that covid and you know the past year and a half of doing things more virtually has actually helped because people are realizing that you don't have to have an internal assessment every single time to to i i don't recommend pelvic pt to every single client you know if that's their goal yes and if they if if i think that they would benefit from it but i i work all virtually and I don't think it's necessary for every single person if you have the knowledge and if you know, you know, the the flags where you're like, mm, you definitely need, need to go see one. Um, and I think that all of the past year and a half has helped speed that up, like catch people up with that. Like, it's OK. It doesn't have to all be done with our hands. Yeah, 100 percent. But that's scary, right? Because if you place your your identity in how good your manual skills are. And now your manual skills are taken away from you. Does that mean that you're less of a PT? People tell people ask me, 
you know, why do you charge so much? I can go somewhere else and get less. And it's like, that's okay, you can. But this is how you're, you're not paying for me in person. You're paying for my brain. So you're paying for my time. Yeah. Yeah. Not even, and your not brain. Even the time. Yeah. You're paying for my brain. So if we're going to mm-hmm. equalize the time, this is how much it, right. this is how much it costs to pay for my brain. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not arrogance. That's just like, that's just how it is. So, I think it's just how it is. Like, I think we need to start seeing our, ourselves as a professional, as a physiotherapist, start seeing ourselves that way too, because I charge the same virtually as I would in person. And um, I've never had anyone ask that, I think because of COVID and how long this has been going on. But I know that there are people who charge like next to nothing for virtual. Mm. I'm like, they're still getting the same quality of care, if not you know, better in some ways because I'm not just rubbing their back for 15 minutes because they feel like they, they want that. It's like I'm getting them the stuff, I'm, you know, helping them in a way that they actually um, will help them achieve their goals faster. So um, it's interesting. It's interesting hearing that from you too. I, I agree. There are, I'm, a, I'm an FCAMT, which is a fellow of CAMT, which is a manual manipulative therapy organization worldwide. And it's funny because I went through my training thinking I had to do that to be an excellent orthopedic therapist. And I barely manipulated people, um, you know, doing spinal manipulation and stuff. I know, I'm trained in all that, but I found that people don't need that. People need to move. And so when we switch to virtual, like my strengths are educating, my strengths are like my brain and hands-on care obviously feels good, but it's a temporary, temporary relief um, compared to you moving your body and experiencing that in your own body and doing the work in between the sessions. So for anyone who's out there listening who has not tried virtual care, give it a try because I think you'd be surprised at how well uh, it can work for you. And if you don't want, if you don't like it, then Go back to in person, right? I think that's the. Uh, I think I have a referral takeaway. bias. I think a lot of what I do manually is because we get to talk while I do that, right? And they get to they get to have that other side of therapy, which is you know the talking about it and the going through it and the unloading and the understanding and the safe space, as well as feeling good at the end of it because they know, um, you know. It's not about the magic hands. It's not about the right exercises. Um, you know, sometimes I don't touch people at all. In fact, most new people I don't do tons of manual with. Um, it's the repeats that come in and, you know, the regulars. I, I find this really helps me. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah, manual therapy. At, That's what I miss uh, about in, cl- in clinic work is I my, re- my regulars who would come in for, you know, the maintenance and they were – really good with their home program and they were feeling great but that that did benefit um and yeah because that's when i usually recommend (laughs) yeah i know it's the talk it's the the feeling like you're taken care of in that way too Uh, but there's so many great people i can refer to and i'm sure you have that too um there's a network all over the world of amazing physiotherapists massage therapists and trainers and coaches which um connects people kind of all over the world which is pretty amazing so Anthony, I have some final thoughts and I wanted to ask you some questions about you. Um, so tell me, what are you reading these days? Do you listen to podcasts? What's your favorite book or, or podcast or both? Um, I like watching YouTube. So if you call that a podcast, um, you can. But um, I like watching different YouTube channels on different topics. Most of them, if not all of them, are not uh, physio related. Um, 
because I, I really believe in learning broadly and seeing how that might apply in my situation or just not having to do physio stuff. Uh, in terms mm -hmm. of books, I my last three books, I finished Think Again by Adam Grant. That's a really good book. Uh, that's on my list. It's a good one. You should read it. And then uh, two Jack Reacher books in preparation for the latest one that's coming out. Um, it's coming out this month, I believe. Um, so that, that'll be... That'll be cool. I find it's just, it's light, it's easy. I, I have a very vivid imagination, so I hear it and I see it. Um, so that's cool. Um, but I also like the formula. When, when you listen to a whole bunch of Lee Child books about Jack Reacher in a row, you realize that there's a formula being used. It's how we can pump one out every year. Um, hmm. And I, I like being able to sit back and see these unfold so it's taken me a couple of years to get through them all but I like just seeing how it unfolds and, and the patterns and the storytelling because I think that's that's what's really important for us as therapists is to be able to weave a, a good story based on the evidence mm -hmm. for us but that's mm -hmm. that's often what is so powerful and so being an educator as well as a therapist I want to be able to weave better stories that's why I read books like that um, very cool and so so youtube i don't listen to any particular podcast um the this week in virology with vincent racanello and daniel griffin that particular one it's just under an hour and it's a recap of the latest COVID research um and they're just a bunch <laughs> of science nerds and they just make it easy for me to to keep up with that stuff um, to absorb that yeah, yeah. and um what your question had lots of parts in it. I don't remember all of them. No, no. I think you answered that. Your favorite book, book or podcast. Oh, favorite book. You're, That's different. Listening. You asked. Yeah. I think you asked me what what I'm reading at the moment. What you were listening to now? Yeah. yeah. So my favorite. What's your favorite book? of all time? Um, there's quite a number. I always default back to um, to quite a few, but I think the one that made the biggest impact on me professionally and personally is how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie, uh, the original version, not the millennial version, the, the new millennium version. My parents have that book. It's a great book. It's really, really good. Um, I recommend it always. Um, and it's, it's one that I really think, uh, people could read many times and get what they need from that to improve their interactions with each other. I think that's important. Mm. Um, Switch by uh, Chip and Dan Heath is a great book. Uh, it's a book about change. All their books that I've read have been fantastic. Um, and I would say that uh, they're inspired by Malcolm Gladwell. So I've read quite a few of Malcolm Gladwell's articles and books. I, I really like how he he tells a story as well and how he outlines his arguments on topics. Um, and then the Freakonomics uh, guys, um, they're, they're awesome too. Um, so it tends to be those those types of books where you have to think differently. Bo Lotto's you think, book, yeah. Bo's Lotto book, um, Deviate, is another favourite. Um, so the, these are all good books. And, and of course, the hardest book on earth to read, uh, which is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. 
that's wow that's a hard book like i would read a sentence and my brain would explode with possibilities um it, it would take me an hour to read a page so in the end i got the audio book just so i can listen to it they're, they're they're my favorites they're the ones that i like to recommend nice i thought it would be funny if you know you had said something like pride and prejudice or something that's know. super like I know. I, I just, I, I was like, them. how hilarious would it be if Anthony's sitting there reading those types of books? No, I really don't <laughs> Although like I knew you were reading Think Again, or um, so I, I figured you, those, those weren't the types of books you enjoyed. Um, so Anthony, what are three things that you try to do for yourself every day um, that's maybe outside of the work that you do? Um, watching YouTube. Um, three things that I do for myself, watching YouTube, um, staying in touch with other people uh, around the world is helpful for me, I think, and uh, taking my medicine. They're, they're definitely the three nice. things that I do every day that I find helpful for myself that are not work or not work related. Not work related. <laughs> and what's something that you've been into lately that you have been super passionate about? Um, I learned, I learned how to use Google Apps script, which is a version of JavaScript. I learned how to make my own menu and code a bit to do a few things that will make my, there's a process that we have to go through when we're making courses and forms and responses. So I, I sat down a week ago or just over a week ago, um, I sat down and, um, learn how to do that and it took about four hours of programming and eight hours to debug because i had to learn each step so i i had the mm. concept of what i needed to do in my head because back at school i did pro and then i did physio i was going to go into it but, oh i didn't know that uh, yeah hmm. but um that's why you know so much about all the computer and tech stuff no it's not actually it's just I have no. an attitude of it must be possible. Let me find out, and so I go find out. Um, yeah, the, the um, but I have in my head the process that should take place. I just don't know how to code in that language, so hmm. I had to learn how to do that. I know it's possible. It must be possible. And then I was googling, and then I'd find code snippets, and then I'd figure out how the code worked, and um, you know, learning how a language works through immersion because I was doing it through immersion. Thank God it was using English words, but, um, you know, figuring out how they were defining certain things that was like mathematics so that it did, the code mm. didn't have to be too long. And then what the functions did. And it was really fascinating. That exhilarated me. Like I finished that at like one thirty at night and I was buzzing. I didn't get to sleep for another couple of hours because <laughs> I was just so excited at what, I'd done and figuring it out and figured out and the frustration. I nearly cried a few times because I knew it was possible, but it wasn't working and trying to find the typo. Like often it's one character. That's the problem. I'm trying to find the typo and how frustrating that is. And there was, there was a few things, but in the end it got there and um, yeah, a, a real sense of achievement and passion. Um, and I wanted to get back to it this weekend, but I wasn't able to. So, I have more. It's unfinished business. 
that uh, reminds me of my creation my website I don't have a super fancy website by you know website standards but I put so many hours of work into figuring it out myself there's some coding stuff that I needed that I you know asked somebody for help but I feel so proud knowing the amount of work that's gone into that and it's a totally different part of my brain in some ways I mean it's still problem solving and all that stuff but um, it was just fun and I I just laughed when you said you were up late at night doing it because that was me. I'd be like, oh, just this one more thing. And then I'd be up to like 1.30 or 2 <laughs> and then be like excited about doing more of it the next day. So um, I think this, this, yeah, it's just funny. Yeah, well, I But could've. it's pretty cool. It was, pretty cool to have those things. It was working after four hours and I had to make a decision if I automated it or if I got, it's Jenny, to rename the sheets. I knew that I could automate renaming the sheets. So in the end, I decided to do that, and that was difficult. Um, mm. that, that was just a lot more complex on another level. Um, but, you know, it was, it was good, uh, and it was fun, and I enjoyed it. Nice. And so, Anthony, where can people reach you with questions, comments? Um, I'll include all the links, of course, yep. in the show notes. Uh, the easiest is to find me... Um, on Instagram at Physio Detective. Um, you can use Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. It doesn't matter. You'll find me. Um, and website, the probably the easiest is antonylow.com. Uh, whether you're a patient or a health and fitness professional um, or, you know, you want to have me as a guest on the podcast, all of those options are there at antonylow.com. So that they're probably the easiest way. Send me a message, ask me a question, drop a comment on one of my things. Always up for a discussion. And I, I love that about you too, is when we took the course with you last year, you had said, you know, stay in touch through Instagram. And, you know, I did. And I think that it's pretty incredible to be able to learn from you and also stay connected and have these discussions um, because we're all in our corners of the world doing these things with our own clients. And I think it's incredible to be able to have these conversations. Um, and one final question for you. What would you say is your dad's strength? What's my dad's strength? If I didn't answer mm-hmm. dad I usually jokes, ask people what their mom's strength, <laughs> your dad jokes. If, if my dad jokes aren't my dad's strength, I don't know if I'm really a dad, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> I think that. I think uh, the other dad's strength that I have is that um, it took a while, took a long while. I'm a slow learner that way sometimes, but, uh, being able to admit that I was wrong, uh, that's never been a problem. I'm always happy to admit that I'm wrong. Um, but working on changing that, uh, that's hard. That's hard, you know, mm. because you, you, you raise these kids who, um, uh, are so reliant on you and you only want the best for them and they never feel that way until later and and having to change approaches is difficult um, because you know you've got to build the trust and you've got to build different ways of doing it so um, yeah I, I suppose that's an investment game uh, so and each kid is probably different and has their own ways of needing things too. Yeah. And, you know, just watching them make mistakes over and over is very frustrating, particularly if the solution that you provide is actually and technically correct. Uh, so frustrating. <laughs> like it's not even a subjective opinion thing, you know, it's like, 
It's like, I know this will work. Yeah, like, this is the way to do that, what you want to do, but okay. Um, and then they find out about it on YouTube. Oh, you just have to do it this way. And he's like, yeah, told you that ages ago. No, you didn't. He's like, yeah, okay. I have to let this whole truth and justice thing go. So <laughs> I have had these... I can remember having these discussions with my parents. And you, as a child, you never want to admit that you were wrong because it's like an ego thing, right? Yeah. But I can see that when you grow up, like, you know, when you're in your, I don't know, 20s, for some people in their 30s, you kind of realize like, oh, yeah, my parents kind of did know what's up and they were, they did have my best interests in mind. But it's hard as like a kid or teenager. I feel like they just don't have the like full maturity to grasp that yet. Yeah, um, the space of possibilities isn't themselves. the same. And there's a fine line between projecting your fears onto your kids um, mm. and thinking that the way that you did it is the right way. Um, so often the advice that I give is born out of the mistakes that I made. Um, and so, you know, there's it's it's a fine detail between giving information that's going to be helpful um, and principled versus um, stopping something out of fear of it happening again. Like that that's, you know, like here's what I recommend. Projector. Yeah, here's yeah. what I recommend based on these principles um, is different to you shouldn't do that because this 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 or this could happen like that's different um and that's really hard work and and i do try to work towards that work. but um yeah to me it well, all first boils step down is you have to, to be aware of it too yeah, yeah. to me it boils yeah. down to attitude i have the attitude of even if it's not going to work i want to try um and if it doesn't work out i'm going to try again uh, you know my mm -hmm. dad my dad recently told me because I asked him, I said, did I give up as a kid? Like, was I was I somebody who quit easily? And he laughed. He said, we nearly cried because you would just get up and go again and get up and go again. Like to the point of like they wanted to save me from this and I just would just go again. Um, so, yeah, I've always had that persistent stubbornness. Mm -hmm. There is a um, when I was part of this mom group when my daughter was born. There's like seven different aptitudes. It's like persistence, sensitivity, and like it's there's everyone fits on a sliding scale from like, you know, zero to 100 or whatever. And um, it was kind of like figure out where your baby lies. Are they more sensitive? Are they more persistent? Do they give up? These? And it's very interesting because we have these tendencies from when they were babies. And it kind of carries on throughout our lives. And sometimes these like sensitivity is seen as often a negative trait but it can be a beautiful trait and persistence highly persistent people it's kind of seen sometimes as like stubbornness or bullheadedness but it's actually a beautiful trait and kind of working with your strengths and what you have and maximizing and capitalizing on that because your persistence is what gets you to where you are today right or it could keep you in it's the hole that you're in you know or it could keep I was gonna everything say, is could go either way everything is double-edged yeah. everything has a plus or a yeah. minus so managing that is is the hard thing but to the answer of what's my dad's strength the short answer is dad jokes and the long answer <laughs> is um the ability to reframe or recognize and reframe or at least uh try a different way of doing things because you know, 
I don't like when I make mistakes. I really don't like it. I get very frustrated by it. Um, mm -hmm. But I also know that I just learned something. And, and sometimes it takes me a few times because I forget. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, it's, I hope that's something that gets passed on to my kids. Um, yeah. I'm sure it will. How old are your kids now? 19, 18 and 15 and a half. Hmm. I'm only half the package wow. and I'm a very <laughs> flawed package. So hopefully they take the good things away from me. So. <laughs> and, That's and what I always wife. hope. I'm like, I hope my kids take my the good stuff from each of the parents, mm -hmm. but you know that inevitably they're going to get some of the like, well, not as good stuff yeah. too, but I think it's, we're all flawed. So there we are. Uh, well, Anthony, thank you so much for spending your time with me today uh, on the Mom Strength Podcast. Uh, I really, really appreciate it from, you know, we talked about many things from diastasis and prolapse and fears and working with people and their goals and getting to hear them and hearing their stories. And it's also been great to get to know you uh, on a different level and some of the things that make you, you. Um, if you are listening to this today, I want to thank you. So grateful for you. And please share this podcast, this episode with somebody who you think could could benefit from listening to this. Uh, thank you so much. This is Surabi signing off. And thank you so much, Anthony. It was great to chat with you tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And um, yeah, if there's one thing that I could leave with, it is restricting activity in the hopes of saving a vagina is not holistic pelvic health. So go out there yes. and yeah, find people on your team that want to help you towards your goals. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Mom Strength and being part of this important conversation. Check out the show notes for more info and links and we'll chat again real soon.